Good morning. Good morning. I'm Steve Blummer, one of the pastors here at the church. I just want to reiterate something that Jack had mentioned in his announcements. That Lent is February 17th, which is coming up pretty close. We are uh, also having a Lent devotional that will be mailed to every household in Hope Chapel. And uh, with that, we are kicking off a prayer initiative. And we can all probably think of things that we would like others to pray for us during this time. Pastor Neil thinks that it will be easier to get the 100 people to pray than the 1,000 prayer needs a day. I'm looking at the sign-up list and saying, I'm not too quite sure. We need 100. We're asking and praying for 100 prayer people. And the way you can do that is go to hopechapelsterling.org, prayer right at the top, sign up down there, joining the prayer team, and we'll feed you about 20, 25 prayer needs a day for you to pray during the 40 days of Lent. It's a prayer challenge. Praying for you, praying for people you know, praying for people you don't know, inviting your community to send us prayer needs. And so I think it's a great time for us as a church to be united in prayer as well as ministering to our community through prayer. So if you would, would you please consider joining the prayer team? Now, we have been in a series about how God is actively seeking to bless those whose hearts are seeking him based on 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. And last week, Pastor Neil took those thoughts into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in the New Testament book of Matthew. Now, some scholars have problems seeing this as one complete sermon, one complete message, one complete lecture, because it covers a lot of topics in a quick fashion with really some profound and astonishing claims. It would have been a lot for his listeners, and it's a lot for us, to absorb. And so some scholars see this section rather as the greatest hits of Jesus. But at the end of chapter 7, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. And then chapter 8 begins, When he came down from the mountain. So it seems like it is one moment, this one occasion. No other gospel writer records this long sermon, although parts of it are seen in different places, including Luke's account of Jesus' sermon on the plane. And this is not plain like an airplane. It's plain like a big flat ground in Luke chapter 6. So most likely, in my view, Jesus is sitting on the mountain giving these talks, these lectures, in a community town hall style. We see in Luke that the disciples asked Jesus, to teach them how to pray. And so we don't get this interaction, these questions, this dialogue here in Matthew as we do in Luke and in other places for Jesus to be able to respond and give these kind of topics and answers. And it's most likely that many of these messages and talks and lectures were said more than once to various people in various locations because any good preacher knows how to recycle a good message. This is new, though. It's important to note that on this mountain or this hill, Matthew chapter 5 begins by saying that Jesus was sitting down with his disciples. Now, this was not the 12 chosen disciples, the inner circle, uh, but they were anyone who was eager to learn from the teacher, the rabbi, Jesus. Chapter 4 ends by saying how there's these large crowds that were following him from Galilee to Jerusalem to Judea, to beyond the Jordan. 
There was a wide range of people from many different backgrounds, experiences, religious beliefs, all joining in these lessons. There were Jews, non-Jews, people from big cities, people from tiny towns, people who would relate to a different topic, a different message, but everyone was going to be challenged by what Jesus had to say. At the end of his message, the final lesson was that the one who has learned anything is going to put it into practice. No one has ever made themselves into anything purely by listening. If you want to become an airplane pilot, you can't become one just by listening to some lectures about it. If you want to become an electrician, you can't be one just simply by watching a YouTube video on how to wire a three-way switch, which you can do that, and it is helpful. Jesus is saying you can't just look at another marriage and then become a great husband and a great wife. Now, we do learn by listening and watching, but you yourself cannot be something until you start doing something. You've got to be able to put it into practice. We may not be very good with it at first, but we're practicing, and over time, we're better and better. James in the New Testament says not to be hearers only, but to do the word of God, to put our faith into action. Jesus already pointed out how spiritual attitudes and spiritual conducts go hand in hand with these blessed are those whose statements that we saw just last week. And we're going to see more evidence of this following through the next several weeks as we go through the sermon. None of us are going to be able to walk away from these messages, or we shouldn't be able to walk away from these messages and not be challenged to change an attitude, a belief, an intention, a character trait, and change some type of action, duty, or responsibility. Whether or not you are a religious person, whether you're a little spiritually rusty, or whether you're a professional spiritual athlete, if there is such a thing, or whether you live in a big city or whether you live in a tiny town, all of us should be able to walk away with something that Jesus said and be challenged to do something different. So let's get into today's message. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. I'll read it again because I'm sure everyone was paying attention to baby Brody. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt shall lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I want to point out that Jesus says, you are the salt. You are the light. This is not a command. He's not saying, you go be salt, you go be light. 
It's not a, a plea. It's not a motivational speech. Get out there. Be salt. Get out there. Be light. It's not a wish or a hope or a want, desire. He's not, I'm saying, I hope that you become salt. I hope that you become light. He's saying, you are the salt. You are the light. It's as if Jesus picked up a potato and said, you are a potato. And if a potato can think and talk, he's saying, well, duh. I already know I'm a potato. I thought everyone said this guy was smart, right? It's not a potato because Jesus said it's a potato. It's because it's already a potato. And Jesus is saying, you're not salt and light because I'm telling you now you're salt and you're light. You're salt and light because you already are salt and light. You are salt and you are the light. I want you to think about that. And let that soak in. You are the salt. You are the light. Now, you may be thinking, wait up, <laughs> me? No, not a chance. Maybe you, maybe her, or maybe him, but not me. But think about it. Jesus is not talking to a specific person. He's not talking just to religious leaders. He's not talking to the inner circle of disciples. He's not even really talking to the non-religious people there. He's talking to everyone who desire to follow after him, to listen to him, to do what he did. The you here is plural. See, down south, they got it. They called it use all. <laughs> use all are the salt. And the light of the world. He has this phrase. He says, anybody who has ears, let him hear. And I always thought that was a little strange. Why does Jesus say that? Is he being rude and sarcastic? Of course I got ears. Is he giving people who can't hear very well a way out? What did he say? I don't know what he said. It didn't matter to you anyways. No, he's saying, it's kind of like this. If I tell my kids that I need them to do something, maybe take the dog out or clean up the house... Inevitably, someone's going to say, you talking to me? <laughs> I already did that. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. And I'm saying, listen, I'm not talking to anyone specific. If you heard me, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to everybody. No one is excused here. And Jesus is saying, I'm talking to everybody. You are the salt. You are the light. Now, this would be particularly convicting for the Jew as well as the Christ follower. Even though Jesus was talking to a variety of people, Matthew here is writing primarily to a Jewish reader. He's picking out the greatest hits of Jesus to show the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews were the ones through whom blessings would flow to the world because they were God's people. The world was not blessed simply because they existed in the world. The world would be blessed because they were doing things to show God to the world. And yet we see story after story in the Old Testament how God's people forgot to love God, which resulted in lots of problems in the world. Sound familiar for today, maybe? For the Jews and the Christ follower, this is a huge reminder of their responsibility. 
And I think for the non-religious outsider listening in, this was fascinating. Because it gave them purpose. It gave them power to see things happen. Jesus to say, you're the salt. You are the light. It gave them hope that they can accomplish a lot of good as an individual and as a collective community. There was power in that ideal, in that statement. Now, they could have thought, wait a minute, how does that work, Jesus, with what you just said? What good could the poor and the humble do? What, what good could the, those who are mourning and merciful, what could they do? How about those who are making peace rather than war against the injustice? What good could those who just focused on God and his righteousness do against those who made the rules and the regulations? How are they going to be able to withstand the persecution of the opposition if they're just following Jesus' blessed are you kind of commands, which seem to make us weak and yet have some grand effect on the world? It seems very impossible. But those are the things that also should intrigue us as Christ followers because of God's call on our lives. They should fascinate us. They should motivate us. It should provoke this renewed ambition to do something that really matters because we're not here just for ourselves. Living a godly life is not just for our own benefit. Living a life with God is much bigger than that. And so it really should cause us to evaluate our schedules, our conversations, our spending, our social networks, and so on. Would you and I consider that what we're doing this weekend or what we did this last week as making significant good on this earth and in this world Maybe, and it seems like a really impossible task. But Jesus is saying, the fact is, you are the salt. You are the light. And so it's time to put those shoes on, lace them tight, and get walking. It's time to take on that ownership that belongs to you and do something to take the responsibility, to get excited about what can and what should happen through us as God's children as we live out this life together. Use all. And I don't think that we can wait to get back to when things are normal. We got to do this right now. Salt and light. Well, what are salt and light? What are we supposed to do with salt and light? Why does he use salt and light anyways? Well, salt can preserve and enhance. Salt is a preservative. It's a seasoning, an enhancer of flavor, a cleaning agent, a healing medicine necessary for our life. But it can have a negative reaction, of course, too, right? 
Too much salt ruins the preserving. Too much salt ruins the seasoning and the enhancing. Too much salt in the body can cause high blood pressure. A salty solution can kill a plant. It is also used on a massive scale by armies to harm an enemy territory so that it would stop producing growth. Salt has powerful effects when it's used in a tiny amount and when it's used on a large scale. It often really doesn't take much to provide the intended results of salt. And so making an impact into this world may not take as much effort as you think. And likewise, I think we can all think of maybe a person or a situation or words that we have used that were kind of overbearing. They were too much. And that stood in the way of growth. Salt. Salt, because of its capabilities, is a valuable product. You know, in the New Testament times, salt was not as available as it is today. Because it has many uses and because it was hard to find, it was extremely valuable. Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. Here's your paycheck. Salt. Oh, thanks. Now, we don't quite understand that because we can go to the store or we can order online our salt. There's access to different types of salt, special salts from around the world. But Jesus calling them salt meant they were valuable and useful and maybe sometimes hard to find. You, for this world, are highly valuable and highly useful. And I'm sure there are people here today or listening online that you are doubting that statement. You might feel very unvaluable. You might feel very unusable. I mean, during this last year of separation and isolation, you didn't really feel very valuable or useful. Maybe you haven't been able to do what you did before at your work. Maybe home situation is just a little more stressful. Maybe you haven't been able to serve the church as you did before. You've got this desire to do something great, but you just don't know what or how to do it. And so you don't feel very valuable. You don't feel very useful. But Jesus is saying, you are valuable. You are useful. And we don't need to be doing something on a large scale in order to feel valuable. In fact, it's just a little bit of what you can do is doing the work of the salt. Maybe it's just making sure yourself and your kids are preserved in God during these stressful times. That's doing the work of salt. Maybe it's just providing a little seasoning, a little spice, a little humor to your work situation with your coworkers or in a small group or with one friend. That's doing the work of the salt. Maybe it's just clicking share on a Sunday morning message so that other people can be encouraged by God's word. That's doing the work of the salt. Just a little bit of sprinkle. 
just a little bit of dash, salt of the earth. What about light? Well, light can spur growth. It can provide assistance. Light is necessary for things to grow, to be able to see things better, exposing obstacles in our paths or helping others find their way. It's a power source, although they probably wouldn't have understood solar panel illustrations back then. It's a a source of warmth and comfort. We could use a little bit more sunshine right now. You know, light was God's first creation that when he created, he looked at it and says, that's good in Genesis chapter 1. In the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, God is the ultimate source of light, and therefore there's no longer any darkness. Jesus is saying, you and I are those things in the world. We're useful, we're valuable, we're necessary for things to grow. We can help shine light on someone else's path so that they don't stumble and hurt themselves. We can allow someone to shine their light in our path because we don't want to fall down and hurt ourselves either. I don't like that. We can bring warmth and comfort to a situation. Light. Now, you may not think that your light is very bright. but You know, just even the dimmest light provides much light in a room of darkness. We're useful no matter how bright or dim we may feel. Now, it may seem strange for Jesus to call us light because we may think, wait a minute, John said that Jesus is the light of the world and he gives light to everyone. Jesus made this claim in John 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How can we be the light when Jesus is the light? I mean, if Jesus is the light, Jesus is better than me. Jesus, you be the light. I don't need to be the light. But in the following chapter, John chapter 9, verse 5, listen to this. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Well, what happens when he's not in the world? Maybe Jesus is saying, yeah, he's the real light. He's the real source of light. And at the end of time, when we're all together with God, God is the ultimate source of light. There's no more darkness. But while I'm in heaven, interceding on your behalf, and you're here on earth, you're the light that reflects my light so that people can see my light in this world. You are the light. And this gave the Jewish reader, and I think us today, a stark reminder of our responsibility. And for those hearing this who are outside of the faith, again, it sounds fascinating. They understood the power of a city all lit up on a mountaintop. This communicated security, and strength. It could be seen for miles. There was power in a united 
number. So it takes each home, each person, each room, lighting their light to create this massive display that can be seen for miles. And Jesus is saying that this is possible when we're together. And you may, again, not feel like much, but when your light is standing next to another light, 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 that light is bright. And Jesus isn't advocating us for us to be this candle sitting on top of a mountain. He's saying, we need to be a city on a mountain together. That's why, in my opinion, it's, it's so important for us to be connected to another believer. It's so important for us to be connected to a small group, whether it's just two or three other women, two or three other men, two or three other students, two or three other, other younger adults, whether it's in a life group, which are really hard to make happen these days. It's all the more reason to be connected into a local church to be connected into a church that partners with other light-giving organizations that shines the light of Jesus in our community and around the world together. But I don't think Jesus was saying these things so that he can remind us that we're salt and we're light. In fact, he points out two problems that hinder you from being salt and you from being light. That's the main thrust of Jesus' illustration, in my opinion, that if the salt shall lose its taste, how can it make me salty? And no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. What do those mean? Well, it's not as though salt can stop becoming salt. It's a pretty stable chemical compound. I'm no scientist, but that's what I hear. In those days, salt would be mixed with other minerals. And it would be pretty obvious whether that block or piece of salt was pure salt or not. If it had other minerals in it, it wasn't doing what it was designed to do. It wasn't preserving. It wasn't enhancing. And so it was tossed out on the ground where it belonged. Now, Jesus is not saying that if you're not doing anything for me, you're just like a piece of dirt. Get out of here. He's not saying that. Remember, he says you're valuable, you're useful, you are salt. But he's saying that there's a way in which you can lose your tastiness, your effectiveness as salt to where people just dismiss you and trample all over you. And when that happens, how are you going to be able to get back as tasty salt, effectiveness with people again. See, you're still salt, but people don't find you salty because of your beliefs or your actions. You lose your ability to preserve when people don't think that you can preserve what matters to them with your ideals. You lose your ability to enhance when people stop thinking that you can enhance their lives with their beliefs, or with your beliefs, excuse me. Well, how can we lose our effectiveness. Well, the Greek word here for losing taste is to act foolish. 
You and I can lose our effectiveness to be salt in our marriage, with our kids, with our grandkids, with our coworkers, with our community, when we're being stupid. I mean, how can anyone take us seriously what we have to offer as a salt when we're just being irresponsible and reckless? How can anyone take us seriously if they know how we act on a certain day of the week and then we act a certain way on a different day of the week? How can we be trusted as salt when we've got all of these mixed minerals in our lives and our lifestyle? And that's why the church is labeled as hypocrites. Now, none of us are perfect. I'm not perfect. Not even close. And the church is a place for imperfect people, right? But you and I know that we're called to this high standard of living. (laughs) And Jesus is saying that already, right? He said, you need to be one of humility, one of mercy, forgiveness, seeking peace, reconciliation, meek, and so on. Because it takes about one mistake for those outside of the church to stop trusting you. It takes just a few more for those within the church to stop trusting the church. We can lose our effectiveness. We can lose our saltiness. And how are we going to be able to get that back? I mean, you could just look at when a news station posts an article about COVID cases stemming from someone who went to church. Hundreds and hundreds of people hating on the church. Hating on the church. Because they don't see church as a place that's essential, that can provide anything useful for anyone, period. Has the church lost its tastiness? Maybe so. How are we going to get that back? How are we going to be effective again in this world? Jesus told us that we were going to be hated. He told us that we were going to be persecuted. But he said, you better make sure that you're persecuted because you're doing the right thing, not because you deserve it. Frankly, sometimes we deserve it by the way we act, or our overbearing words that do not communicate humility and love and mercy and peace. And you and I need to make sure that we're not altering the truth of God's word in order to be tasty. That's not what he's saying either. I mean, this word here, to lose taste, foolishness, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul said that God's wisdom makes the world's wisdom look stupid, foolish. And God's wisdom looks foolish to the world. That's the gospel. To believe that Jesus is God's son who came from heaven and earth to die for the forgiveness of our sins, was buried, he died and rose three days later and ascends into heaven where he's interceding on her behalf, that sounds foolish talk to those 
in the world. And we've got to make sure that we don't lose that kind of foolishness in order to be tasty to the world. We've got to take God's truth and begin with us. Make them relevant to our own life. And then you can take those truths and apply them to other people's life. This is what it does for me. It's effective for me. And I think it's effective for you. That keeps our salt tasty. That keeps our salt from seeming boring. Salt's not boring. Salt is exciting and enhancing. And so we got to make sure that we don't lose our testimony of salt by dirtying the truth of God's word with our words and our actions or by watering down the gospel. We are God's salt of the earth. Now, this can be a little overwhelming on this challenge, right? Huge responsibility on our shoulders. And we may say, eh, I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to hide over here in the corner. I'm going to let someone else's salt do the work. I'm just fine over here. And that's where Jesus comes in with that other illustration of light. Because he says, no one lights a light and puts it under a basket. You don't walk into your house and turn on the lights and then quickly throw a blanket over it. You turn the light on because you wanted to have the light on. You are the light. Don't try to turn it off and turn it on when you want. We can try to hide our light. But when we're doing good in the world, it's hard to hide that. And I don't want to get tripped up with this phrase about let the light shine so that it can be seen by men and give glory to God. Because you're saying, whoa, whoa, that sounds really contrary because I know what Jesus is going to say in chapter 6. In chapter 6, he talks about praying and fasting and giving secretly so that only God sees what you're doing. Which one is it, Jesus? Well, there's a difference between the two, and it has to do with motivation. In chapter 6, Jesus is attacking the motivation, the intention to do spiritual action so that everyone can look at you and say, you are so spiritual, you are so wonderful, and you do it because you want people to say how spiritual and wonderful you are. The point here is that Jesus is saying, as you're doing your spiritual actions, as you're engaged in making the world a better place, you're helping other people, you're being that preserver, that enhancer, you're causing things to grow, you're shining light on other people's path, you're engaged with other people, it's hard for people not to take notice. It's hard for people not to be impressed with your selfless acts when they're selfless. And they may try to give you praise, wow, thank you so much. But these type of people say, no, no, it's not me. It's all God. He just happens to be using me. That's it. That's the difference. We can't get away from you are the light. I am the light. So let the light shine. Let it shine. Be active in this world to doing good works for people. Be that well-lit up city on a mountain where people take notice. They cannot deny 
that something's there. So be salty. Seek to preserve and enhance. Don't be foolish. Don't lose your tastiness. Don't lose your effectiveness. Let your light shine. Don't hide what lives in you. Do what you can do where you are at, even if it seems just like a little bit. People living in darkness, they will see the light. This is the way in which you and I will be blessed. This is the way in which the world is serves and becomes better. And this is the way in which God will be glorified. That sounds pretty exciting to me. Salt and light. Let's pray. God, thank you for showing us how valuable and useful we are. You've created us to make an impact in this world, not just to float around in this world wondering what our purpose is. We are salt and we are light. Thank you for revealing to us some problems that can hinder us from being salt and being light. It's a challenge. So God, I pray. I pray for myself. I pray for those here today. I pray for those listening online that you would help them to be salty, to be tasty, to be effective where they are at, to be the light in our own house, and then as our house is lit, our next house is lit, and so on, that we as a church could be united in being a well-lit city in this community. God, we need your help in this. Remind us often. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be closing out our service in a song, so if you would please stand. You can even stand wherever you are there at home and join us in worshiping the God that we serve.